chairman of the Eurogroup, ministers that are here, ambassadors, uh, and uh, also all the excellencies that have accepted to come, members of parliament, uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's a great, great privilege to have you here. I think we are in a marvelous uh, accommodation here with the best beautiful cars of the world. So again, thank, thanks a lot to uh, the Bruegel team to have organized that. Uh, dear Jeroen, uh, you are Minister of Finance of your country since the November 5, 2012, President of the Eurogroup since uh, January 21st, 2013, and also, I have to say that uh, it is something which is also very important, President of the Board of Governors of the European Stability Mechanism since February 2013. You have a very rich political life in your own country as a member of a very important par political party, as member of parliament, and uh, you have worked a lot during uh, your uh, political life uh, and uh, before your political life on education, on issues of youth care. Uh, and I have to say that you are an exemplary Minister of Finance with a formidable dedication to fiscal discipline. And as a previous central banker, I have to say that uh, uh, all my previous constituencies looking at you as an exemplary finance minister particularly, I have to say, when you have to run the Eurogroup. And uh, this extremely important institution in the uh, constellation of institution in uh, Brussels that has to take the ultimate decision on, upon the recommendation of the Commission on the SGP, on the MIP, let me tell you, Mr. Minister, that the MIP, the Macroeconomic Imbalance Procedure, has always seemed to my colleagues in the Central Bank, and uh, um, I would say a lot of observers, as important as the SGP. And if I may, in front of Otmar Ising, we were together with uh, uh, other friends that are also here in the board of uh, executive board of the ECB, and uh, we were, of course, in 2003 and 2004, calling the governments of Europe to respect fully the Stability and Growth Pact, and it was not easy because the big countries had decided not to respect the Stability and Growth Pact. Enormous problem, not necessarily only for them, but also for all the other countries which could see the bad example. And since 2005, we said that the main problem of Europe was probably the uh, loss of competitiveness that was observed amongst the euro area countries and was sustained over years, year after year after year. So this diverging cost competitiveness position were something that we trusted was extremely grave. We were not given any responsibility, neither in the Stability and Growth Pact implementation, nor in the monitoring of uh, cost competitiveness 
and imbalances inside the euro area, but we were understanding that it was something which was very important. And not only, of course, the SGP and the MIP, Mr. Minister, but you, you have also, as represent, representing the uh, governments, and again, enlightened by the Commission and on, upon the proposal of the Commission, many, many other issues, including to the extent that uh, uh, the executive uh, are responsible for that banking union. So again, I have to say that uh, you have the, one of the most, if not the most important uh, responsibility in the executive side together with the commission in the Euro area. Uh, I have to say that uh, we are here in a marvelous museum. We see cars that are uh, marvelous and let me utilize the metaphor of the cars to tell you the story of the two gentlemen that were going in Ireland in a very remote area and they were in a small village uh, along the sea, totally lost with their beautiful car. So they were asking a fisherman, uh, we have to go back to Dublin. Uh, what would you suggest, uh, sir, for us to go as far as possible to Dublin? And after scratching his head uh, for a couple of minutes, the fisherman said, well, if I were really you, gentlemen, I would not start from here. And <laughs> I, I think from time to time, it's probably what you think, Mr. Chairman of the Eurogroup, that you, you, you would prefer not to start from here, not to have all the imbalances that have been accumulated and all the debt overhang that have been accumulated. But okay, that's life. You have to deal with that. And uh, you have to deal with a situation which is obviously difficult. Uh, and I have to say that uh, colloquium, like uh, Bruegel's colloquium, are uh, of extreme importance as regards the listing of the uh, weaknesses and the assets, uh, the positives and the negatives of Europe. I have to say, when I make myself the audition, and I listing what has been said, I see much more negatives, obviously, than positives. And it seems to me personally a little bit unfair. If the Europeans themselves, and we are at the heart of Europe, here not only in the capital of Europe, but in a think tank, which is uh, considered extremely important in Europe, and I'm proud of that, and we have with the most eminent representative of, uh, of Europe uh, with us today and uh, during this dinner, and it seems to me that we cannot list only the negatives. So I embark on something which is extremely counterintuitive for a central banker or a previous central banker, which is to try to be optimistic and not only say you are not uh, abiding by the rules, you are not respecting the SGP, you are not respecting the MIP, and it is scandalous. Consider that I say that very, very strongly. Now, the euro. Is the euro about to evaporate, about to collapse? Is it true that if we do not do immediately this and that, the euro disappears? Let's look at the reality of the euro. That new currency went through the worst financial crisis ever since World War II, at a time where New York and all the marketplaces of the world were upside down. Did the euro disappear in this worst crisis since World War II? Did the euro 
at any moment lost uh, its credibility? Did the euro was considered at any moment by markets, participants, uh, investors and savers the world over as dead? You know pretty well, one of the most uh, frequent criticism was the euro is too credible, <laughs> too strong, uh, too high in the exchange market. So again, those, and they were numerous, uh, not only in the rest of the world, but some in Europe, which uh, were, who were arguing that the euro would disappear were wrong. Totally wrong. The euro area, you remember, uh, had you organized uh, some kind of uh, poll, say in uh, the US or in Asia, perhaps at a certain moment, you would have had a lot of people telling you, of course, the euro area will be dismantled. It goes without saying. We are in the worst crisis ever since World War II. How could this entity which is so bold, not being dismantled. And a lot of money, by the way, was bet on the dismantling of the euro area. So, looks at the facts. The fact is that we were 15 in the euro area at the moment of Lehman Brothers. It was really the moment where the, the, the peak of the crisis, the global crisis, not only the European crisis, the global crisis came. The 15 are still there, which does not mean and the president of the Eurogroup knows that better than anybody, that we do not have major problems with some members of the euro area, and that governance is more of the essence than ever, national and European governance. But the 15 are still there. And four new countries got in. Where are you reading? In which papers are you reading that we were 15 at the moment at Lehman Brothers and we are 19 today? So that more than 25% more country entered in the euro area. The four countries in question, as we all know, are uh, Slovakia and the three Baltic states. Now, another small flash, which uh, I want you to consider also, because we are plunged in an ocean of bad news and uh, terrible news on Europe and on the EU area. I was recently in a colloquium and checking how we would behave in the most recent period in the EU area and in the United States of America. So I was looking at the first and second quarter of this year. And to my enormous surprise, I confess my enormous surprise, because I was absolutely sure that the US would do much better we were posting 0.9% of euro area growth for two quarters, and the US was posting 0.5. So we were 0.4% over and above the United States of America in this very short derivative of, of course, which is the first semester. So I look at the last 12 months, the last four quarters. Last four quarters, we are posting one6 and the U.S. is posting 1.2. So again, we are 1.4 over and above. We have unemployment, which is a disgrace in Europe and in the euro area. And we know that we are far from having caught up with the previous level of GDP per capita that we had at the moment of the crisis. And the U.S. has done much better than us. So it's not to dispute the fact that we have a lot of problems. 
but where did you read that we had done better in terms of growth over the last 12 months? Of course, nowhere. It is exactly like the 19 instead of 15. And exactly like you don't see that we were extraordinarily resilient in this dramatic crisis, you are only reading that we still are extremely vulnerable and we are about to, to collapse or evaporate. So I don't say that again to minimize our problem. I am myself in favor of a Minister of Finance of Europe. I am in favor of giving the Parliament of Europe much more clout than what he has in, uh, uh, and to have the final say in close connection with the national parliaments on very important issues like a quarrel between a country and the institution of Europe. But again, we have to be balanced. We have to see in our own extraordinary historical endeavor the positives as well as the negatives. The negatives as well as the positives. Uh, we are very bold. We are extraordinarily bold. We have a, an enterprise, an historical enterprise, which has no equivalent in the world, had no equivalent in the history of uh, humankind. So it's not surprising that all what we do is very difficult. It's very difficult because it's very bold. But again, it's also something which is going on and something which has a lot of, uh, of positives, if I may, more at least than what is communicated. So, uh, on that positive note, let me only say that uh, we are immensely privileged to have uh, uh, Jeroen uh, Dyselblum with us. And again, I said already how not only eminent he is due to this past responsibility or present responsibility, but also how important it is that the man who has in the brain the management of uh, the euro area, the governance of the euro area in all its dimension, could share with us his own wisdom and uh, his own vision. Jürgen, you have the floor. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. <clears throat> Jean-Claude, thank you very much for your introduction. Um, I will also go into positives and negatives in a slightly different context, but it's about Europe, of course. Um, a few months ago, I spoke to Guntram Wolf about this event and about possible topics for my remarks. And as you know, elections are coming up in France, in Germany, and also in my country, the Netherlands. And at the same time, the polls, not to mention the outcome of the Brexit referendum, highlights the appeal of populists all over Europe. So today, my remarks will focus on what Europe's agenda should be to counter these populist trends. So let me just catch on where Jean-Claude left off, taking the optimistic approach, which I welcome very much. Um, so let me first talk briefly about where we are. Despite global headwinds, our economy is recovering, and growth have returned to almost all the EU countries, almost all the Eurozone countries. And growth in the Eurozone over the last quarters Jean-Claude already mentioned it, 
uh, was higher than it was in the US. Unemployment is expected to decrease uh, to slightly over 10%, which is still far too high. Our deficits have fallen quite sharply. 19 countries have left the excessive deficit procedure since 2011, and debt levels are still declining. The general government deficit in the euro area in 2009 was over 6%. Oli remembers well and is expected to decrease to slightly below 2% this year. So all in all, there are many de positive developments to report from the Eurozone at the moment. However, reading today's newspapers, you would guess differently. Uh, there is still a lot of doom and gloom going on. Europe is old and inward-looking. Europe, Europe's economy is in a structurally in bad shape. Europe is slow, it's expensive, it's inefficient, and I could go on for a while. According to European populists, the solu solutions are relatively simple and straightforward. Just close the borders, leave the Eurozone, leave the EU, and don't sign any more trade deals in the future. So where is all this pessimism coming from? To answer this, let's first go back a few years to the end of 2008, when we were faced with something unprecedented, a huge banking crisis, which then became a major sovereign debt crisis. And we are still recovering from this. And then last year, we were faced with a big refugee crisis. But using the word crisis is becoming uh, a little bit of inflation. It's been used too much. And I'm beginning to wonder if we're not suffering, because of the real crisis that we had, of post-traumatic stress syndrome. Every event that now occurs immediately is framed as the next big crisis for Europe. Take the volatility we had in the stock markets at the beginning of the year, or how the markets behaved ahead of the Brexit referendum. Even the slightest headwind now tends to be framed as the beginning of the next crisis. This preoccupation stemming from the trauma of 2008-2010 blurs our vision on the real issues at stake at this moment. And it's true. In my mind, the EU has failed over the last years to deliver on its main tasks. The EU, and the euro area in particular, is a unique construct in the world. But in recent years, it has underperformed. The refugee crisis and the threat of terrorism coming on top of the financial crisis made it painfully clear that we were unable to guarantee to our people prosperity and security, which they rightly ask of us. Today, while the EU has become more and more intrusive, people feel that the EU has not been part of the solution to their problems. But the EU is unique. It's also unique because it's high standards of social economic security. And that is something we can and should be very proud of. The welfare state is part of our core social cultural heritage. It's part of our identity. And we policymakers should be much more aware of this.
and yet our social system cannot remain static. Our welfare state is under increased pressure due to several reasons. Firstly, the economic and financial crisis created pressures. All member states have to increase competitiveness while bringing back their finances on a sustainable footing at the same time. And this requires for politicians to make difficult choices between solidarity and investing in future growth, but preferably in keeping those two together. Secondly, demographic aging forces us to define the scope of solidarity. Our population is in turning increasingly grey, which poses a challenge to our public finances, for example, due to the costs of health care, long-term care, pension systems, but also the ratio of people over 65 and those aged between 15 and 64 has changed drastically and will change further, making our social welfare state unaffordable without adaption. Thirdly, migration may seem, may seem in the short run to uh, uh, offer an attractive solution to aging, but it would in fact be hard to replace, to realize this in practice. Immigrants face barriers because of their language or cultural backgrounds, and also very often their skills don't match the many new jobs in our society. Without a job, they rightfully receive income support benefits in many of our countries, which puts pressure on our welfare state again. And when immigrants do enter the labor force, they tend to occupy jobs in the lower segments. This means that natives, our native workers, face increased competition, which can put further pressure on their wages and reduce their employment opportunities. Indeed, these concerns played a major role during the Brexit debate in the UK. And lastly, globalization. Globalization can be seen as another threat to our welfare state, although it has brought many benefits. Take, for example, the rise of China. Not only have millions of Chinese people been lifted out of extreme poverty, but lower prices for many goods have also boosted growth in advanced economies. However, too often we focused on these aggregate gains which conceal substantial redistributive effects within our societies. Workers in sectors which competed directly with countries like China have seen their factories close and have faced lower wages or unemployment. And we often assumed that the transition to new sectors would take place automatically. But this has proven harder than predicted and the workers who have lost out have become skeptical of free trade. We may have underestimated these side effects of globalization, and we have to face up to the fact that some have simply benefited more than others. So what does this mean for our agenda today? First of all, let me say this. In recent years, politicians in all of our countries embarked on lots of reforms to solve problems despite of the risk of losing elections. Sometimes we were forced by external factors, the implosion of the banking system, risk of defaults of sovereigns. Sometimes we forced each other to reform, like in program countries. These reforms have been perceived and sometimes skillfully framed 
as an attack on the social security system, on the social system of our European states. They have been framed as an abuse of the crisis to get rid of governments and government interference, feeding directly into populism. My direct response to populism would therefore be to ensure fairness and equity between generations, between insiders and outsiders, between globalization, winners and losers. Because inequality is not a given. Because aging and migration don't require us to dismantle the European social model. And because implementing reforms doesn't mean we have to diminish our social welfare state. Fairness and equity are not the answer to everything, but they surely have a vital role to play uh, and also to understand the rise of populism in Europe. We need well-designed and well-timed reforms to increase fairness along different dimensions. Let me mention a few. First, fairness of people's opportunities. Here, education is the most important investment for people to get ahead. High-quality education give our children the opportunity to become smarter, more productive, and to get on in life. Training gives adults the chance to develop new skills to adapt to a changing world. The OECD 2016 Going for Growth report indicated that the biggest gain in labor productivity are achieved through educational reforms. Too little attention is given to that. So we need to invest in education, vocational training, improving the quality of our teachers, and providing early childhood education. And this is by far the most socially benefit, benefit, beneficial type of reform. It will promote fairness and equal opportunities for all. And it will help both migrants and their children, and those who are at loss, at risk of losing out from free trade. Secondly, fairness is also about who pays the bill at the end of the day. And each and every individual or company should contribute its fair share. So let me give you a few concrete examples on this. It means multinationals that profit from well-functioning educational and judicial systems should also contribute by paying for these services, an issue which I think is at the top of our agenda at the moment. And as Dutch minister, I always say, all of us has been part of the problem, also the Dutch tax system, and we need to become part of the solution. We need to fix this. It's about justice. So that means fighting tax avoidance and increasing tax compliance, and it's a fundamental issue when you talk about fairness. A fair and effective way to allocate the costs also means if a bank fails, the investors who took the risk should carry the burden, the well-known shift from bailout to bail-in. If you want the profits in the good time, you will carry the losses in the bad times. Another example of who pays the bill is about sharing burdens across generations. Aging comes at a price, and we must share the burden of this equally over generations by linking life expectancy to retirement age. Thirdly, we need fairness in the adaptation, in adapting to globalization. In this respect, ensuring fairness between globalization winners and losers 
requires on the one hand that we acknowledge that trade deals will bring benefits but also concentrated costs. So we will need to provide short-term social support as well as long-term labour market reforms to stimulate employment shifts between sectors. On the other hand, it will also be necessary to ensure other countries do not compete by lowering their labour standards or ignoring environmental standards. We'll need to protect our standards in the trade deal that we sign. There is a third element to avoid a race to the bottom. The free movement of labour also requires we assure employees from elsewhere cannot work here by undercutting our national minimum wage. Fourth, we need to reform our tax systems, and this is true for almost all of the countries in the Eurozone. We need to reform our tax systems to reduce the tax burden on labour. Taking on a worker is still very expensive in Europe for the employer. We can help fix the labour market and improve income equality if we concentrate our efforts in the reforms of our tax system on the bottom part of our labour markets. And a number of countries have taken initiatives in that area, like I believe Finland very recently. To conclude, I would be the first to say that fighting the different types of inequality is not the solution, the sole solution to today's populism. But I'm absolutely convinced that inequality is one of the biggest drivers of people's concern. And many populist parties in Europe have understood that very well and have made the social welfare state part of their agenda. Let's get it back. Fairness and equity should be the life motive in our approach today. Solving the real underlying problems is one thing we have to do. Another is avoiding to make old mistakes. The EU has in past decades been built by taking big historic steps. In the process, taking a lot of risks of weakening the whole construct. So let's be careful to take more big leaps into the dark as we have done in the past. As I said, the EU is a unique construct with no simple governing structure. And yet, questions of migration, questions of globalization are too big for individual member states. So my response to populism is not a lecture on how we can improve the governing framework of the EU. It's not to think of another big project that requires a deep, pool, deep dive in the pool of integration. Not now, at a time when our fundamentals are so unstable and people question the legitimacy of the EU as a whole. The worst response, in my mind at the moment, to the real problems in the lives of our people is to simply repeat the old answer of more and deeper integration. So let's take a pr pragmatic and yet a fundamental approach. Let's take on the questions of migration, globalization, the aging of our population, technological disruption from the angle of equity and fairness to reduce the many threats to our electorates. Security and prosperity should again be the key deliverables of the EU, step by step. 
strengthen what we have and actually complete it, secure our outside borders in order to manage migration and integration, reform our welfare states so they become and remain beneficial for all generations, and finish projects such as the banking union so it really protects the taxpayers, the capital markets union so capital becomes available to smaller companies and startups, and the single market which can still create additional growth. Explain what Europe is and what it isn't, and stop using as the Europe as the convenient scapegoat for all the difficult decisions we need to take. Thank you very much. I think the idea was to take questions, but I don't know whether I, we have a moderator or whether I should moderate you. Right. All right. The idea is, if you want to ask a question, you can use the microphone which is here at the front. I'm not responsible for the logistics, I'm just trying There is a mic here, so the people that want to ask a question can come here to ask a question. Thank you very much. My name is George Sopari. I am from the Central Bank of Hungary. Um, Europe is facing uh, centrifuge forces that we haven't known for many, many years. In fact, from the beginning. In the beginning, we had big discussions about technical issues, EMS, SNAKE, Maastricht criteria, um, uh, SGP, SGP reform, etc. Now we have issues of political nature, migration, Brexit, Turkey, Greece, um, sanctions against Russia, etc. And the dividing line is not one way. Some of it is north-south, like Greece. Some of it is east-west, like uh, like um, immigration. Some, some of it is West-West, like Turkey, between France and Germany. So this is a unique situation. Does this shift the focus away from building European integration? Uh, or how, how do we overcome this? What are your views on that? Wow. Let's start with an easy question. Um, look, I think when I said that Europe was built by big steps, I didn't say it was a mistake. I think in the context of the historic periods that we went through, uh, in the post-war period, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, these were big historic events and big steps were then taken in Europe, which I fully understand. And I praise the leadership of those that were in government then. But in doing that, we expanded the EU without at the same time strengthening it. We started some major projects without finishing them. The most uh, obvious example at the moment is Schengen without protecting the outside borders or building a monetary union without dealing with bank regulation and supervision at the same time. So I think that finding balance between on different issues in Europe Yes, it's more complex than it was, but we, I think we can still do it. When we negotiated the banking union, there were very different national interests. 
not clear whether it was north, south, or east, west, but very different national interest. But still, we were able to find mechanism to take steps forward together. And I think that's still possible. So don't get me wrong, I'm not against further integration in areas where the added value of Europe, in my mind, is absolutely clear. And I have not heard a lot of populist protests against the banking union. Why is that? Because there is a very strong case to have a single rule book in Europe for our financial sector and to have one regulator, one supervisor, supervising our bank. So you can take the electorates of Europe along in further steps of integration, but you have to have a good case. What some of us have done too long is to say that whatever is the problem, Europe is the answer. And if there is a criticism in the way Europe functions, our answer is we need more Europe. We really need to be more careful. So I want to make the construct that we have and the cooperation that we have stronger to deal with some of the challenges and to bridge some of the differences that you described, uh, but do it much more in an evolutionary way, making sure that we become stronger as we move along rather than what some people are advocating at the moment. Let's take some major big steps forward in the integration, for example, in the Eurozone. Thank you so much. Uh, Minister, Chairman, uh, Nicolas Veron at Bruegel here. Uh, thank you very much for your remarks. Uh, you referred in your initial remarks and also in your response to George Sapari to uh, finishing the job on banking union and uh, doing what the ECOFIN calls strengthening banking union, which is largely a combination of creating a European deposit insurance scheme, a backstop for the different uh, instruments that have been created, also introducing sovereign exposure limits, uh, which is sort of the counterpart and, and a few other things. Now, the Dutch presidency under your leadership has tried to make progress on this count, and I think many people believe that the June ECOFIN has resulted in a sort of statement of stalemate in this area. Uh, so can you give us more of a sense of how, I mean, basically, as you presented it, and I would agree with that, this is the one project of Europe bringing something concrete and constructive and important that can be uh, achieved in the current difficult political environment without treaty change uh, in a pragmatic way. Can you give us a sense of how you think this project will make progress and will be achieved in the years ahead uh, in spite of the difficulties that we've uh, uh, observed in the first half of this year? Thank yeah. you. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, during our presidency, we tried to pull everyone back in to make progress, to take next steps. We know what we need to do. I think you mentioned uh, the different areas that we still need to sort out. Uh, we have to complete the single rule book. Uh, we have to strengthen the bank balance sheets, which requires still further adjustments. Some believe that the work is done. I don't think that's true. We need a European deposit insurance scheme. We need a common backstop to resolution fund. So those are the, the key elements. There is a very simple political trade-off that I try to introduce, which is let's move forward in reducing the risks in our banks whilst uh, sharing the risks further between the different banking sectors. Uh, as you know, I'm very eager to protect the public side from these private risks. But when I talk about sharing risks, I predominantly mean sharing risk between banking sectors across borders in Europe. Um, the principle was agreed. Taking the next step uh, was a little more difficult. As always, there are elections coming up, uh, so we have to deal with that. Uh, 
uh, and in some countries there were legacy issues which have to be dealt with. And the Italian government is working very hard to deal with some of those legacy issues in the banks. So um, I think we've outlined and also mentioned some dates in which we will take next steps so that at the end of the transit period in 2024, the whole project is finished. Why am I so eager about this finishing the banking union? Because I don't want to be responsible for the next project that we leave unfinished. And my experience in the EU is that we leave too many of our projects unfinished until the next crisis comes along and then we find, hmm, it wasn't finished. There are some holes, it's leaking, the roof has come down. So uh, I'm very committed to get it done. I'll take it step by step, slow if necessary, but as fast as possible. I'm Charles Grant from the Centre for European Reform in London. I'd like to ask you a question about the European Commission. The Commission, which took office two years ago, proclaimed itself a more political commission than its predecessor. And it was indeed elected by a new method, the so-called Spitzenkandidaten method. And I guess there's an idea in being more political and less technocratic or technical that perhaps you can overcome the bridge separating EU institutions from the people. I've just spent the last few days in Paris where people there in the government tell me they like the current European Commission more than the old commissions of the past because it is more political. It considers the political context in interpreting, for example, rules on budget deficits. And it's less, less blindly following the exact letter of the rules. Do you think the Commission has become too political? Very good question. Um, at the start of this Commission, I suppose you could even, just before that, as you mentioned, the idea of having the Spitzenkandidate, was that the name? Yeah. I thought it was actually a good idea. I believe that European politics should become more politicized and less, perhaps, technocratic. I mean, we're all looking for a way to bridge the gap between what's happening in Brussels and what's happening in our electorates at home in towns. So I was very much in favor of that. I was also positively intrigued by the idea of this political committee. But there are a couple of areas where the commission needs to be very precise of its role. Um, when we designed the budgetary framework in Europe, uh, a number of countries, among which were the Dutch, said we need a very strong commission because if we leave it up to the member states, the large member states will get together, which happened a couple of times, uh, and we're not sure that we need someone to uphold as a sort of an objective party to uphold the pact. So that's a very important role for the Commission. And it's not digital. The pact has lots of flexibility. And yes, you can argue with member states what they're doing and how budgetary figures should be assessed. So it's, it's not concrete, never has been. Um, but there needs to be predictability, there needs to be credibility of the pact and also of the Commission. So that is a concern. Okay, I take that as a cautious uh, yes to my question. Thank you. Oh, I, I've said more stern things about it at other times. So, Mr. Minister, thank you so much. You were very generous of your time, very frank, candid in your response, including the last one which everybody understood very clearly. And so I think that you deserve even much more than a big round of applause. <laughs>